with some prayer. Lord, thank you for your abundant blessings you have given to all of us, the blessings we are able to perceive as well as, as those we may not yet understand, but are nonetheless by your wisdom, love, and providence working in our lives for our greater good. We ask you to open our ears and hearts and minds to the teaching of your words so that it draws us closer to your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. One of the worst jobs I ever had was as an executive officer in an army recruiting company in my old stomping grounds of West Los Angeles. This was way back uh, you know, near the height of the global war on terror, shortly after President Bush uh, had just won a second term of office while Saddam Hussein was rotting in an Iraqi prison awaiting trial. Stars and stripes and yellow ribbons were waving everywhere, and because I regularly went about the civilian world in uniform in my role at the time, uh, I had more than one lunch or coffee bought for me by gracious civilians wanting to thank me for my service during a time of war. You would think that during such a patriotic and bellicose time, it would have been relatively easy to trick the young and idealistic to sign up with Uncle Sugar. But you would be wrong. A recruiter met the recruiting quota if he could just get one kid, one, one kid to, to ship off to basic training per month, one per month. And this quota was very difficult to meet. I therefore tried to help my men out uh, whenever I could, uh, you know, wherever I could. And there was this one time when one of my sergeants asked me to talk to one of his prospects. And the reason he asked me is because this prospect of his had said he was a Christian and had expressed spiritual concerns with respect to joining the army. And because my sergeant knew that I was a Christian uh, as well, maybe, maybe I could speak his language and you know, help address his concerns. So I met this kid for coffee and talked to him. And you know, he did seem to check all of the boxes of general evangelical Christianity. You know, he attended Bible study regularly, went to church regularly, read his Bible, prayed. He was fluent in Christianese and so forth. And as for the army though, you know, I, I don't really remember all of his uh, objections in detail, but when it came down to it, none of them were particularly theological in nature. And in the end, what he said to me was something like, the Holy Spirit hasn't given me a sense of peace, a feeling of peace with respect to my decision to join the army. In other words, he believed that his feelings of unease amounted to a kind of message from God uh, that needed to be followed. Now, if this kid had just said something like, I don't want a job that may require me to sleep in a cold, wet hole in the dirt outside, or if he'd said, I don't want to maybe have to kill people, or if he had said, ah, you know, I just don't want to have to wear the same clothes as everybody else around me all the time, you know, that would be fine, you know, no worries. You know, although my sergeant would be sad about not making mission that month, uh, we don't have a draft, it's a free country, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with just not wanting to do something because it just doesn't appeal to you at all. You don't want to do it. But his objection with this whole feeling of peace thing was a little different from that. As a Christian, this kid had therefore elevated his feelings to the status of a divine mandate that he was obliged to obey. Now, some of you have probably heard me rant over the years about this 
sort of modern Christian habit of trying to examine one's feelings as though they may contain some kind of revelation from God. And the problem with that, uh, as I may have also said before, is that if God did communicate to you through your emotions, through your feelings, then you know, you'd really struggle to distinguish between God's promptings and your own heart's desires. You, you would have no objective way of knowing what was his voice and what was yours. And there's a deeper assumption behind this kid's words that is even more sort of problematic. And the assumption is that if I am following Jesus rightly, if I'm walking in his will and doing what he would have me do, then what I am doing uh, or planning to do will just feel right. There will be peace about it. Everything will just go smoothly. I was rereading uh, recently the, the book of Jonah because it's one of my favorites. And to recap what that was all about, uh, you may remember John, or God calls Jonah to preach death and destruction to the city of Nineveh, uh, which of course is, you know, was the main city of the Assyrians, which were of course the hated enemies of the Israelites. And so Jonah doesn't like the Ninevites, and he despises the Assyrians, and Jonah doesn't want to preach to them, not because he's afraid of them, but because Jonah knows God. He knows that God is a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting in disaster. In other words, Jonah knows that God is going to use his sermon of doom to bring about the Ninevites' repentance and to actually save those wretches. And he doesn't want that to happen because the Ninevites are horrible human beings. They're a degenerate society, and Jonah wants them to pay. So what does Jonah do? He, he gets on a boat to Tarshish, which is about as far away from Nineveh and from God as, as Jonah imagines he can go. And then this is what happens. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah, and this is the fascinating part here, Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So God sends this violent storm. Jonah is violating God's explicit command to him. Clearly, Jonah is walking outside of God's will and he knows it. The ship and the crew and Jonah are all in great danger as a result. And what does Jonah do? He's sleeping. The captain of the ship, I mean, he's dead asleep. I mean, the captain, in fact, later has to wake him up. Uh, you know, and, and, and now, you know, so maybe, maybe Jonah is deep asleep because his, his heart is weary and burdened from being outside the will of the Lord. I mean, could be that. But, but there's no evidence or indication that that's the case. And the book of Jonah actually tells us a lot about how Jonah is feeling when Jonah is feeling things. It's, it's actually a very psychologically intense book, almost, almost modern in its preoccupation about mixed motives and ambiguity of mind. Like in the end, when Jonah finds out that God doesn't destroy the Ninevites, Jonah is 
is outraged. He's incredibly outraged and he's angry. He's so angry that he tells God that he just wants to die. But here in the ship, while he's sleeping, disobeying God, sailing away from God's will, Jonah just, he seems fine. No absence of peace whatsoever. In fact, he's very much at peace with his disobedience, so much so, with his conscience completely silent, he just sleeps like a milk-stuffed baby. The human heart is fallen. And so that means that what we love, we love what we ought to hate. We, we love what we ought to hate, and we enjoy that which should bring us sorrow, and we are at peace when we ought to be disturbed. And this is even true for you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Even as a Christian, the heart remains an incredibly unreliable guide, an awful guide. You think about the Apostle Paul. He was preaching to the Gentiles. He had this, you know, going throughout Greece. He had this really bad time in Athens. And he comes to Corinth. And what does he think of Corinth? How did he feel about being there? He wrote that... I was with you, Corinthians, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, which is all pretty much the opposite of peace. More often than not, doing what God has commanded you to do, must do, will bring stress. Doing the will of God will often bring fear, discomfort, and it will not bring you peace. The Holy Spirit guides you not by giving you feelings of peace, but by illuminating and helping you apply God's written word in many situations. And even where there is not a direct scriptural command for your specific situation, the Holy Spirit helps you apply biblical principles using reason and experience, including the reason and experience of others who have gone before you. And the Bible calls this method of walking in accordance with his word, wisdom. And it's often accompanied by distress, fear, and pain, and terrible difficulty. Things often don't go smoothly at all, and we're going to discuss a, a good example of that this morning. So, to refresh your recollection, you know, we're, we're in John chapter 6, uh, starting at verse 16, but you know, before we get into all that, let's, let's go over a little bit of background and context. Jesus uh, is, at this point, probably at the very height of his popularity during his earthly ministry. Why? Because if we remember from last week, he, he's just miraculously fed, you know, anywhere from, you know, at least five to, you know, up to, you know, 20,000 or more people in the event that was, that was described last Sunday, you know, the whole feeding thing. Uh, he took five loaves and three and two fish, and from these, from just these, you know, meager amounts, he, he created the rest for all those people to eat. Now, it's, it's hard for us in 21st century America to grasp what a truly unbelievable, momentous thing this is, to be able to provide so much abundant food so effortlessly, you know, because you know, we live in a world of such plenty that the poor are often fat, and virtually nobody starves to death. You know, we, we still have plenty of poor people, you know, homeless people, but when was the last time you ever heard of anyone starving to death because they could not find food to eat? 
You know, quite the contrary, obesity actually impacts the poor more, more than it does the wealthy nowadays. Uh, and you know, most of us have no idea where food even comes from, uh, let alone how it's made, other than it just sort of seemingly magically appearing at the grocery store. You know, every day, day after day. Except maybe before a hurricane, then you know, no bread and milk. But generally, we have plenty of food. Don't even worry about it. But in, in the pre-modern world, certainly in the ancient world of the first century, pulling food from the ground was, was the preoccupation of, of virtually everybody, of most people. I mean, it, it was life. Your life depended on this food that came from the ground, which meant that it depended on things like the weather. You know, it depended on the abundance, or excuse me, the absence of, of you know, crop-destroying pests, and famine, and starvation, and death could be just, just one locally bad harvest away. Here, though, uh, you know, a holy man creates bread and fish not just to feed, you know, not just to you know, barely feed them, but to, to you know, tens of thousands of people, but to satisfy we read last week that he satisfied, all these people went away satisfied, these tens of thousands of people, until, until he couldn't eat any more. And there was left over. And he does it in, in a moment. So if you're in that crowd, I mean, you are overwhelmed. You're, you're overjoyed. I mean, this, this paradigm shift, this, this has the potential to give you and your family life for the rest of your days without toil or worry. You know, this has the potential to give you and the people you care about you know, security, uh, you know, freedom from famine. And this man who, who made this all happen, I mean, he's a potentially limitless source of, of, of free food. And if you're a Jew in that crowd, there's even more to this. You know, in Deuteronomy 18, God promised that one day he would raise up from the Israelites a prophet like Moses. And you may remember, uh, you know, it was under Moses that God fed his people, you know, manna in the wilderness. So then it's only natural to think that this man, Jesus, who fed all these people so effortlessly, he must be that very prophet that God promised. And, and they were right, actually, about that. And this is why people said in, in verse 14, that was uh, from last week, you know, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. But what else did Moses do besides bringing them into the wilderness you know, where God fed them? What was the other, what's the other thing Moses is really famous for? Well, it was to just lead his people, uh, the Israelites, out of bondage and into freedom. And so the Jews reasoned that if God is going to raise a prophet like this, doing what Jesus had done, as Moses had done, and feeding you know, tens of thousands, he is also going to be our deliverer. This prophet is going to be our Messiah to our king to deliver us from our oppressors, the Romans, right? Just like Moses delivered our ancestors from their oppressors, the Egyptians. You know, Jesus in these people's minds, I mean, he fits the bill to be this prophet like Moses. And so in their minds, he's also going to be, he's going to be their king that they've longed for and prayed for. And that's what's building the minds of the people in this crowd. And, and also, you know, just try to put yourselves in the shoes or whatever, sandals of, uh, of, uh, of one of the 12 disciples. You know, imagine... Imagine the excitement you must feel. I mean, this is what you've been waiting for. This is what you signed up for. I mean, Jesus, this guy, he, he's the Messiah. And, and people are finally understanding. They're finally getting it. You've been, you've been waiting for Jesus to receive the glory that he's, that he's due. Uh, and he's finally beginning to receive it. 
It must have been, you know, this exhilarating moment, uh, you know, right after the miraculous feeding of all these people, and they've gathered these 12 baskets of bread, it just must have been intoxicating. This, this unbelievable, joyous time. You know, God's plan, His purpose, it's, it's all finally coming together. Israel will be raised up, the Romans will be cast down, and then will come our days of victory and rejoicing and glory. Right? But then, something suddenly things change, which we saw in verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, no one tells Jesus we're going to make you king, but you know, Jesus perceives it because he's God and he sees into the hearts of the people there, and he knows what they desire to do. And notice that they intend to do this by force. They will do it against his will if they have to. That, that tells us, that tells us what? That they actually don't really want Jesus as king. Not truly, because to have Jesus for your king means submitting yourself to his will as his subject. You, you may not desire uh, emotionally to do as he commands. You know, very often we don't, or to follow where he leads, but you know that he should. Uh, so you at least desire to desire what he desires. He's good and he's your king, so if you truly and genuinely receive him as your king, you relinquish what you believe you must have or what you want in order to have him. But these people, they want to force Jesus to be king, which is really to make him their servant. They want to use him, they want him to use, to use his power for their own purposes. And when Jesus' way turns out not to be your way, and his plans turn out to not to be your plans, and you cry out, why haven't you given me this thing? Or why don't you take away this burden from me? Or why do you command me to do this thing that I loathe and don't want to do? Be careful. In those moments, you often most are tempted to force Jesus to be your king. For that is the kind of king that you want. Of course, Jesus can't really be forced to do anything or be anything. You know, for your good and in his mercy, he, he does not submit to you. He doesn't submit to you. He's a good king and he gives you, and what he gives you is good not necessarily the thing that you want or crave. So think of that verse again. It's kind of funny when you think about it. The, the crowd wants to make Jesus king. The crowd wants to make Jesus king. I mean, does a, does a crowd have that kind of power? Does a crowd make Jesus king? Does the world establish Jesus' rule? I'm sure some of you have heard evangelists ask, have you made Jesus the Lord of your life yet? And I understand what they mean, and it's a, it's, a, you know, it's a fine phrase. I know what they mean. But the reality is, is that no human being makes Jesus the Lord of, of anything or anyone. You don't make Jesus the Lord of your life. You either submit to him or not. But you don't make him Lord, and you, you don't make him king. In Psalm 2, uh, King David writes, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Father has given all dominion to his Son. His Son has for eternity past reigned and rules over all things. And here in John 6, he just, just fed tens of thousands of people bread and fish created by his own power, and they're going to make him king? I mean, no. He is king. You submit to him and live, or you rebel against him and die. That's the choice you have. We don't make him be anything or do anything. And here, Jesus, perceiving that that's what they want to do, withdraws, withdraws up to the mountain. Now, everything we know about the 12 disciples up to this point tells us that this decision of Jesus would have been just, I mean, it would have been perplexing, off-putting, uh, exasperating, and, and confusing to them. Why are you leaving now? They're thinking, I mean, this is your moment. These people want to crown you king. Why not stay? I mean, what the, what are you doing? The people love you. The crown is within your grasp. But Jesus withdraws to the mountain. Now Matthew and Mark tell us what Jesus went to do on the mountain, which was, which was to pray. And we're not told exactly what he prays about, but we can speculate. Uh, I mean, not with certainty because it's not written, but we can make some intelligent suppositions here. You know, again, this is the peak, the climax of Jesus' popularity among the people. And, and from this point on, though, it's all downhill. It's all rejection and despising and hatred. You know, from this point on, uh, more and more people will reject him all the way to the cross. And so we can't help but wonder if the hardness of heart he sees in these people grieves him deeply. I bet it does. And so perhaps a part of his need for prayer at this point is to turn towards his father for comfort and for preparation for the great coming rejection He'll suffer at the cross. He also knows his disciples, his 12. He knows their hearts, and so he knows how they just, I mean, they're, they're men. They, they long for glory and victory, and, and they don't understand yet that he, Jesus, must die. And they don't yet expect the, the fury and storm of, of violence and hatred that's going to sweep over them as well. I mean, remember that all but maybe two of his disciples will suffer death for his sake. And so perhaps Jesus is praying for them too to give them strength for what is coming. In Mark's version of the story in chapter 6, we read that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. He commanded them to get into the boat. And they were following his command when they got into the boat and pushed away from the shore. And that's why in John 6, 16, John writes, when evening came, the disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake, the Sea of Galilee. They were following Jesus' commands here too since, I mean, it's the same incident. Now it may be that Jesus also said, 
when, when darkness falls, and if I don't join you by then, just go ahead, go without me, cross over to Capernaum. And that may have been his command because that would explain the next phrase. You know, by now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. And that reads as though they were expecting him to join him before pushing off. Perhaps they had hoped that he would finish his praying up on the mountain in time to join them, but in fact, he's not come. Jesus has ascended the heights to be with his father and he's still there. They can't see him. He's not yet come. Now, this is all real stuff, but I hope you can see the picture that is being drawn for us here. Jesus is ascending to be with his Father, and his church is heading off into the darkness. Jesus has not yet come, and it's dark. It's night. Darkness and night in John's Gospel is often more than just the time of day or the color of the sky. In John 13, for example, Jesus you know, he dips his bread into some sauce at the Last Supper and he gives it to Jesus. And Judas takes the bread and the devil enters him and he departs. And John writes, and it was night. Here, Jesus has not yet come. And, and they're on the sea in this darkness. There's, there's foreboding here. There's fear here. But Jesus said, get in the boat and go to the other side. So that's what they're doing. And since they're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do, what God told them to do, you might think that things would go well. But in fact, they get worse. They get worse. That's what we're told there in verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, I don't know jack squat about meteorology or, or sailing boats, but my understanding is that the Sea of Galilee indeed can be quite rough due to the geography, you know, the mountains, the hills, and the weather patterns of the area, and you know, its proximity to the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, but, you know, certainly many of the disciples were familiar with the sea because a lot of them were fishermen. And they made, I mean, they made their living on boats and, and navigating the waters, and they basically know how to handle most rough weather. But, but the narrative across all these gospel accounts suggests that this is a particularly bad storm, and they're not handling it well. Mark says that they were straining against their oars, and, and Matthew says that they were a long way from the land and being beaten back by the waves, for the winds were against them. And being, they were being driven further out into the sea where the conditions would be even worse. And probably, you know, you're in the middle of the Galilee Sea, I mean, you're thrown overboard in the middle of a horrible storm, I mean, you're, you're, you're probably gonna drown. And just think, you know, these men are here because they're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. They're following his will. And here's the thing, I mean, we have this idea that, you know, if I'm following Jesus and, and I'm doing what, what he wants me to do, it shouldn't be painful, it shouldn't be hard. And it all should go smoothly. And my guess is, however, you know, the, these disciples, they are not feeling a sense of peace in the situation. None of them are sleeping in the boat. They're all, in fact, straining, straining at the oars and, and being driven further out into the storm as they're doing so. It's dark. And Jesus has not yet come. Where, where, where is he? Mark 6 provides some additional details of what's going on to flesh out the narrative of John 6, especially in terms of sort of the timeline of events. So in verse 47 of Mark 6, we read that when evening came, 
The boat was out at sea, and this is just evening, you know, not yet the middle of the night. The boat was out at sea, and Jesus was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. You know, so, so it's evening. He sees the storm come down on, you know, where his disciples are out in the waters, and he sees them struggling against the storm. Now, there may be some comfort in this verse because it's dark, and they don't, they don't see Jesus, but, but he does see them in the middle of a deep, rough sea in the dark with their strength failing and their boat tossing, you know, totally vulnerable to the wind and the waves, and, and probably their terror is rising. But Jesus sees them. And note that he sees that they are in trouble in the evening. But when does Mark say that he actually does anything about it? It says about the fourth watch of the night. Do you know when the fourth watch is? It's late. Okay, fourth watch is like, I don't know, like three in the morning. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's the last part of the, of, the, of the deepest part of the night. And, and so Jesus commands them to get in their boat. It's dark. A violent storm pushes them out to sea. Jesus sees them, you know, losing ground. And now, knowing Jesus, what could Jesus do to remedy the situation? I mean, he could just speak, right? He could just say to the storm, be calm. Or he doesn't even have to say anything. He doesn't have to come after you. He, just, he could just think, you know, be calm. And the storm would just go away. Jesus sees that his disciples are in trouble. Waits. Now, the disciples didn't know that Jesus could see him, uh, see them. But to be perfectly honest, if, if I were one of these disciples and I knew that he was watching, now, now this is probably my own sin nature talking here. But if I knew that Jesus was just watching while I thought I was going to die in this horrible storm, I would probably be a little upset. You're the one who commanded us. I mean, you're the one who told us to take this boat out into the sea. Uh, you, do you want us to die? Uh, you're, just, you're just watching? I've, I've been with you for, what, a, a year or two or something like that, and, and I've seen, I know what you can do. I've seen you change water into wine. Uh, I've seen you feed tens of thousands of people with just, you know, five loaves and, and two fish. What, what are you doing? Why can't you save us? Why don't you save us? We're in this mess. We're in this mess because of you. Why is it that you're not, you're not doing anything? In the Song of Moses from, from Deuteronomy 32, we read that the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone. When he sees that their power is gone, then he acts. He fills the people who reject him with bread and fish and sends them away satisfied. But his church, his disciples, his people, he waits until your power is gone when despair looms. Why? He brings you affliction and sorrow, and hunger, and pain, so that when your power is gone, you will know, you will know, that he alone is your deliverer, and not yourself. 
He lets those who reject him have the bread that they deserve, that they want. But you and I, his church, his bride, he loves too much for that. He, he knows how prone I am to wander and, and to abandon him and to dismiss him. How, how quickly I turn from him when everything's going well. So, so he constantly waits until your power is gone and you lose sight of him, though he never loses sight of you. He waits until your power is gone and then he brings the relief so that you know who your Savior is. Returning to John 6, verse 19, uh, when they rode out about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and, and they were frightened. It should be noted that while Jesus could have stopped the storm instantly if he wanted, while he was still back on the land, not only does he not do that, he takes, he takes the slowest possible route to get to his disciples. I mean, you know, he's, he's the Lord of time and space, right? And so he could instantaneously just materialize among his disciples if he wanted. But instead, he walks. And they're about three or four miles away. So he walks three or four miles out to the sea to get to them. And, and now they finally see him, but they don't know that it's him at first. It's, it's dark, you know, and they're at the end of their, their wit's end. Their strength is failing, and the wind is howling. The waves are crashing around them. And they see this, this figure walking, I mean, practically just strolling almost casually towards them. Like, like, it's a, like he's walking in a park on a nice sunny day. And, and this, frankly, like bizarre and kind of freaky sight does not bring them peace. You know, there was a superstition around that time and place that when you were about to die in a storm, you would see the spirits of other dead mariners come to take you down with them to the watery underworld. And so maybe that's what they thought they were seeing. Uh, Mark says that they thought they were seeing a ghost perhaps a harbinger of their own impending status as ghosts. Now, this is the way of the Christian in some ways, right? Uh, you know, what seems to be death to the world and even to us is never for you. If you're a Christian, uh, even death when it does come for you is, is, is not death. I mean, think about the men in this boat. One day, most of the men in this boat will see their executioners coming for them, coming to kill them. But yet, they must learn as Christians, as disciples, and you and I need to learn this too, they must learn to see that, that with these things that are coming to them, that are trying to kill them, Jesus comes. Jesus comes. I mean, for the Christian, there is, there is no such thing as utter disaster. In all things, even when what you are seeing coming terrifies you, and grief surrounds you, and despair descends upon you, even in these, Jesus comes for you and will not let you die. And he brings you to himself, where true peace and true joy are found. They see him coming, but they don't know it's him. But then in verse 20, he says to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now there's a contrast here between the disciples and the crowds. The crowds are those who are moved by his miracles and his wonders. But as soon as he speaks, as we'll see in the coming, you know, next couple of weeks, 
In the later parts of John 6, when he speaks, the crowds reject his words. But the 12 disciples hear, they know him when they hear his words. When Jesus speaks, they know him. And he says to them, it is I. And in the Greek, it is ego eimi, you know, which is the same I am in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, when God tells Moses his name, which is I am, you know, in Hebrew, Yahweh. I am, which is the divine name. I am, do not fear. Now, thanks to Matthew's version, you know what happens next. Peter says to him, uh, if it's you, Lord, command me to come out to you in the water, and I will know that it's you. And Jesus says, yeah, you know, come on out, and so he does. And Peter steps out, but then, you know, we all know the story. He, he, he notices then the winds and the waves, and he takes his, and he starts to sink, right? And then the preacher says at this point, right, usually keep your eyes on Jesus, and you won't sink. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. And that's true, but I think there's another point to be made here. I mean, Peter, yes, he, he does take his eyes off Jesus, but then Jesus reaches down and pulls him up anyway, which is a good thing. Your life does not rest on the strength of your faith, thank God, but on Jesus' arm to uphold you, and he will uphold you. He loves you and will hold you, even when you look elsewhere. So Jesus commands these men to go. The storm has beaten them. Look at this. God has given them more than they can handle. Can you imagine that? Strange, right? Uh, because God never gives us more than we can handle, right? What, what verse is that? Oh, yeah, that, that, that's not there. <laughs> because he does. He does it all the time. I mean, we can all remember a time when he gave you more than you can handle. Uh, we can't handle anything, really, right? <laughs> Jesus commands his disciples to go out to sea, and, and they can't handle it. Uh, it's, it's too strong for them, but it's not too strong for him. He comes to them and he speaks, and verse 21 tells us, and they were glad to take him into their boat. The word glad here doesn't mean you know, happy. It means more like they willingly received him. They openly wanted him in the boat with them. And I think we have a picture here. Jesus speaks, and at his word, their terror turns, and they receive him. And this is how Jesus brought you over from life to death. He doesn't do this against your will, although your will was hardened against him. And at first sight, you probably did because you know, you're a fallen creature. You thought of him as your enemy. But when Jesus spoke to you, he softened your heart, opened your eyes. You saw, and suddenly you recognized him as a friend and not as an enemy. And as savior and not as a judge. I mean, he is a judge, but if you're his, he won't judge you. You recognize him coming to save you, and you willingly received him. So Jesus returns from his father, and immediately the boat is at the land to which they were going. Mark and Matthew note that immediately the storm ceased when Jesus got into the boat, but John adds that the boat immediately reached their destination. Because Jesus, again, is Lord over time and space. You may remember uh, earlier this morning, reading from Psalm 107, uh, which concluded with, uh, something like, he made the storms be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. And that's what he does here. He stills the storm and brings them to their desired haven. 
Now, Jesus could have done this at the very beginning with just a word, but, but he loves them. He loves them too much to keep them from affliction. Because to keep them from affliction, to keep you from affliction, would be to hide his power to save. So let these men, and he lets us, you know, he, so he let these men and lets us in various ways, uh, you know, to see his wondrous works in the deep. He brings you to reel and to stagger, and then he comes and makes the storm cease and brings us to our desired haven. When Jesus comes, uh, here I think we can look forward to the future. When Jesus comes, and not before then, because we want it to happen now, when Jesus comes, when he returns, the storm ceases. When he comes, we will have reached our destination. We're not there yet, but he sees us and he is coming. And when he comes, we'll finally have rest. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the Lord of the storm. Waves do not batter you, wind doesn't blow you down, nothing can stop your saving purpose. We thank you that you have promised to save us, you promised to save all who cry to you, who call out to you, and we know that you do, you have already. You have saved our souls, and we know that one day you'll save our bodies. It does sometimes seem that we are in some kind of tempest or storm, and I pray that you will give us patience. Help us to not depend on our own strength or our own power, but to lean on you and yours, to rest in your promises and hope in your strength. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.